to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into village, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. On a mountain stream, when the stream bed takes a turn, there's often a deep side pool where the waters slow down and collect before swirling back into the main current. Well, as we come to the conclusion of chapter 6 in the Gospel of Mark, verses 53 through 56, this is like a deep side pool where the current of thought slows down and the uh, Different ideas and themes are collected and and spin around a little bit and flowing through the ideas before returning back to pick up and go on in chapter 7. And so I want to remind you what we've looked at in in these six chapters. In chapter 1, we saw the beginning, the gospel source is Jesus Christ being uniquely Son of God. And we point out there that Uh, Without getting too technical, there was no definite article not identifying him as the Son of God, but rather putting an emphasis on his characteristics, who he is as uniquely Son of God. And he is the source of the good news. And so the gospel claims this world for the kingdom of God. Never forget that. Jesus came into this world to claim this world for the kingdom of God. That is the good news. And we find immediately then Jesus leading the vanguard. He's the advance guard in the gospel campaign as he goes on an assault mission against the world, the flesh, and the devil into the wilderness. He wasn't stumbling around out there, not sure what he was doing or where he was going. He was directed, he was ordered by the Holy Spirit to be the vanguard, to go ahead and making this claim of the world for the kingdom of God. Well, we move on to chapter 2 as the gospel source being uniquely son of God Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has authority on earth. And what was the main thing that was said there in that chapter, but that He has authority on earth to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins only but God? And what does Jesus say? Take up your bed and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Which is easier to say? Take up your bed and walk? Or your sins are forgiven? Well, we think in human terms, oh, show us a display of power. Tell the lame to get up and walk. And Jesus says, that's easy. Here's the hard thing. Your sins are forgiven. And so we go on to chapter 3 as the gospel source being uniquely son of God. Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. You might remember there, there was confusion and, and trouble within his earthly family. And Jesus says, no, there's a greater family of God. It's a supernatural family of God through the new covenant adoption of the Holy Spirit. On into chapter 4, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. What does Jesus give us in this chapter? But as the one who mediates the mysteries of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and as creator, uncreated God. And then on into chapter 5, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this world and the other world. You might remember again, What's recounted to us there of the Lord Jesus uh, in his uh, uh, power over a, a man possessed of many demons 
uh, over a, a woman who is uh, fearful and tries to hide but touches his garment and is healed. And Jesus points her out, not to embarrass her, but to glorify God and to tell her that her faith has made her whole. That this is a saving act of God. And then to go on and to do a stupendous uh, demonstration of raising a little 12 or 13 year old girl from the dead. So I tell you that Jesus is the source of the good news. He uniquely, one and only, is the Son of God. He is Lord over the living and the dead between this world and the other world. And then that brought us to chapter 6 where we spent a few weeks as we see the gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief. Remember, the, the apostles were sent out to preach the message of the kingdom of God. They were given power and authority from Christ. And he said, whoever doesn't receive you, shake the dust off your feet against their unbelief. And then there was disbelief. Jesus went to his own hometown. And what do we find there? People said, oh, this is common. We know who this guy is. What is he saying these things for? This is, we, we disbelieve. This is the carpenter's son. And even maybe suggested uh, disreputable things about Jesus' mother. And then there were false beliefs that were recounted to us by King Herod. He was convinced this is John the Baptist come back from the dead because he had a guilty conscience. And he speculated about who it might be and about these superstitious beliefs. And then we find that after the amazing demonstration of which the apostles themselves were a part of feeding the multitude and the food never ran out... Uh, a few little loaves and fish that never ran out. Five loaves and three little fish never ran out. But yet, they didn't connect the dots in their weak belief when they were in a storm on the sea and Jesus came walking to them and they didn't anticipate and expect it was Him. They thought it was a ghost. They were overcome with their superstitious fears rather than trusting and believing, remembering that once before Jesus had delivered them from a storm on the sea. But they didn't connect the dots. They didn't connect it in their weak faith. Because their heart was, was calloused in this matter. But what do we come to now? The conclusion of chapter 6? I hope it's been worth it. And that is, saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. Because you see, as we come to the conclusion here, verses 53 through 56, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not neutralized by various types of unbelief. I hope that you are challenged as we went through chapter 6 about these matters of, of, of believing and trusting and knowing and confessing who Jesus is in the midst of these various types of unbelief. But you see, unbelief of its various types does not neutralize the gospel of Jesus Christ. But rather, recognition of Jesus by His saving power as prophet, priest, and king is the faith that overcomes the world. And so... You could take those stories in chapters 1 through 6 as a few cherry-picked stories that Mark gave. Maybe they came from the testimony of the eyewitness of Peter. That's what's commonly accepted, that, that Peter was the source, not meaning the Holy Spirit, but uh, the Holy Spirit used Peter as the source for Mark's gospel. And, and there are these specific incidents and episodes that are told us about Jesus revealing and identifying himself. And then we come to one of these comprehensive concluding uh, summary statements like in 53 through 56 that tells us you can multiply many times over these various stories that we've mentioned. Jesus was always doing these things. John says so much so that he doesn't think the world could contain the books if we told about everything that Jesus did. 
Because he's saying there's so much more. We just have samples. But these samples consistently reveal and and tell us who Jesus is. But you could multiply them over and over and over. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is not neutralized by various types of unbelief. Recognition of Jesus by His saving power as prophet, priest, and king is the faith that overcomes the world. He's the anointed prophet greater than Moses or Elijah. He demonstrated that in word and in deeds. It's revealed by symbolism and antitypes during His public ministry. He references the Old Testament, not only uh, uh, paraphrasing or or quoting uh, Scripture. We saw the the, the Scriptures were um, quoted in the very opening chapter by Mark writing and saying, this is what the prophets proclaim. And John the Baptist came as the ultimate final revealer of Christ, identifying Him as the Son of God. In fulfillment of all that God had promised, the the anointed prophet, He's greater than Moses. Is this the prophet who's to come? That's what the people were speculating and saying. Is this the one who's greater than Moses? Look at what Jesus did in demonstrating His power greater than the great prophet Elijah. And then... Let me give you a hint of what's to come. Somebody shows up to encourage Jesus about the exodus that's going to take place in Jerusalem. Guess who shows up on the mountain of transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And so Jesus is the anointed prophet greater than Moses or Elijah in word and deeds revealed by the symbolism and the antitypes during his public ministry. He's the anointed priest mediating the spiritual life greater than than human weaknesses and death itself by His life-giving presence greater than the manna in the wilderness. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. I give you the true bread of life. I'm the bread who came down from heaven. The true bread of life. Or the showbread, the bread of presence in the holy place. Jesus ministers to us in the holy place in heaven. He is the transcending veil. It's through His mediation that we have acceptance before the mercy seat of God and the throne of grace in the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus is the anointed priest greater than Aaron and all the high priests of old. And he brings us the true spiritual life of which the samples and the examples and the types are but uh, a, a, a promise. But Jesus fulfills them. And so repeatedly again we see Jesus as the great high priest mediating for people. Do you know in the Old Testament, under the old economy, if someone was sick, if they had a rash, if they had an injury, if they had various maladies, if they had disease, and if there was even death, who mediated? Who cared for them? The priest. I don't know if you're aware of that. But Jesus is the great physician because he's the great high priest. And he mediates for us. And we need to not lose sight of that. And then, he is the anointed king, different and greater, with powers over the natural and the supernatural worlds. That's what's been demonstrated throughout these six chapters. That as the authority, as the Lord, as the king, he comes proclaiming the kingdom of God and the mysteries of the kingdom of God because he's the king. He's the mediatorial king of his kingdom, the church. He has a different and a greater power over the natural and the supernatural worlds, more so than any earthly king of human claims, such as Herod. Isn't it interesting that Herod shows up in this episode about John the Baptist and Herod and and, and Herod's superstitions, and the fact that Herod was a pretender king. He was from Edom. 
He was in, in, in place by the Roman authorities. His claim to Jewish kingship was bogus. <laughs> he was an earthly king, a pretender. Jesus is greater than all these pretender earthly kings. And Jesus is greater than the people's desire. You see, Jesus became the people's choice, like Saul of old. Oh, he, he'll be a king that will make us a great nation, greater than the nations of the earth. Not in terms of the spiritual kingdom of God, but the king after our own desires, who can always feed us, who can never be defeated, like a, a worldly kingdom. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not a king like the kings of the nations. I'm a greater and different king. And he taught us and revealed to us the mysteries of the kingdom, about his kingdom. So Christian ministers and Christian believers should believe that the preaching, the preaching of and the witnessing to the new covenant gospel is God's ordained way of being in touch with Jesus Christ. That's what I'm here to stand before you today and continue. Uh, I hope over all the years of my ministry this has been evident and true that it is in preaching and witnessing to the new covenant gospel as God's way of being in touch with Jesus. We're in touch with Jesus as the greater prophet, as the greater uh, priest, as the greater king. He is the fulfiller of all these antitypes, uh, of all these types. He's the antitype. He's the fulfiller in such a wonderful and demonstrated way that it is through his means that he is appointed within public worship and, his, and, and the mysteries of his kingdom that we are in touch with Jesus. We're in touch with Jesus today in a greater way than even when he walked on earth. Even though we're recounting and, and uh, preaching through the episodes of his public ministry, he promises and says to us that he is in touch with us in a greater way than during the days of his humiliation and his earthly ministry. Now, do you believe that? That must be by faith that you believe that, that by the, the giving and the witness of the Holy Spirit, by our observing and by our faith and our taking even the Lord's Supper and saying that Jesus is more real to us than this bread, that the efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross once and for all given and His mediation in heaven for us is greater and His presence is greater with us by His means, by the types that, that He has fulfilled than what we can see with our eyes or touch with our hands. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? In the record of the gospel, it is my prayer by faith, like John the Baptist said, that I would decrease more and more, that you would be there hearing and thinking about Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. This is what is revealed to us about Jesus and being in touch with Jesus, our Christ. So look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, that is when they had crossed over the Sea of Galilee, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And once again, traversing the Sea of Galilee, as we've seen that happen repeatedly, it's not only a mode of transportation, but it also serves to reveal biblical symbolism, like a transparent curtain or portal between worlds, which Jesus passes back and forth between. Jesus, during the days of his public ministry, during his incarnation and humiliation, before the exaltation after his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, Jesus was still in heaven. The Holy Son of God never separated, was never divided or isolated from the Trinity. There is a mystery in John 3 and in John 6. We're told about that. So here is a, again a mystery 
That we might need to understand that Jesus lived between worlds. He was not bound or limited in the ways that we are, in time and space. And that this is a great mystery about His incarnation. That there is no confusion. We even mentioned in Sunday school this morning that there were not two people in one body. There were two natures in one person. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so, He is on earth and He is in heaven. Guess what else is true? He's in heaven and He is on earth. Do you believe that? That's a test of faith, isn't it? That Jesus is in touch with us today. He is here with us. More real than our physical senses can validate. By faith, we have the Word of God. Not only was Jesus the person of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, still in heaven with the Trinity when He was on earth in the Incarnation, but more importantly for us, He tells us, by the work of the Holy Spirit and witness of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit to us with a, a greater awareness, with a greater testimony, with a greater conviction than even what was evident in the Old Testament. Not a greater reality, but a greater revelation of that reality. Jesus is in touch with us. He is with us today in the ways He is appointed. You see, that's a challenge of faith. You can receive that no other way but upon the promise of God and his word in faith. So, when they crossed over, now you might remember in the immediate context that they had been on the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Tiberias, by those various names, the same body of water. And they were caught in a storm. Remember, toward evening, maybe around dusk or around sundown, after the feeding of the multitude, Jesus dismissed them because he knew what was going on, their speculations and their intents. They wanted to make him king. And Jesus publicly departed into the mountain, the greater Moses going up into the mountain of God. And he dismisses and tells the apostles to, to, disembark, or to embark on the boat across the sea. And then we're told somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning. So they've been out on the body of water, wasn't that far to go, but we're told they're 3 or 4 miles out and they're caught in this storm. And they're straining and they're rowing and they're getting nowhere. And they're fearful and Jesus walks to them on the water now Jesus left them in the storm for a while I don't know how long they were out there but they were out in the storm for a while and you may feel like that too you may feel like you've been in the storm sometimes as if you don't think you're going to get through Lord I feel like I'm sinking the psalmist talks about that I think I'm going to be swamped I think I'm going to drown I think I'm going to be taken down and we're not told what was going through the apostles' minds. I don't know if they were praying. I, this is what we are told. Somehow they were not expecting Jesus to come to them. And we're told why. Because their faith was weak. Because their heart had been hardened or, or, or calloused. They had not understood. They had not connected the dots about Jesus feeding the multitude. That's not about their being unsaved or their not being regenerate. It's talking about their mind being slow. Their heart being dull. And so this is what I'm going to say to you. If you're still in the boat on the storm, if you're still struggling, if you're still hurting, if you're still uh, going through a hard time, I'm going to tell you what you should do. Call on the Lord Jesus. Continue every day. What did the psalmist that, that we confessed this morning say, 145? I will every day ask for your mercy. I will continually, day by day, I will keep calling out to you. Never stop calling out to Jesus. I think if the apostles had been calling out to Jesus when he came walking to them, they would say, that's Jesus. We've been calling on him. That's Jesus. But for whatever reason, 
their hearts were slow and their minds were uh, fogged up and, and confused and they didn't call on Jesus and when they saw him they thought it was a, a bad spirit. They thought it was a phantom. They thought it was an unfriendly specter because their superstitions and fears took them over. And so here you need to understand Jesus is always going to carry you through. Jesus will meet you in the storm. He's not abandoned you. I don't know how long you've been in the storm. But Jesus will always carry you through. And you know what I want to say about that? It's not just He's going to carry you through this difficulty. You know where Jesus is going to carry you? Jesus is going to carry you to the heaven shore. He's going to carry you through. He's going to carry you through every difficulty. He's going to carry you through every heartache. He's going to carry you through every trouble, setback, pain, and anxiety, and worry. Jesus is going to carry you through. Jesus is going to carry you through to heaven. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's what sets our hope before us. There is another world, a dimension of reality, a created realm of existence beyond this limited physical creation. You know, there's a natural world and there's a supernatural world if we believe the Bible. So to be spiritually healthy and sound in body, soul, and spirit, we must accept the limited revelation from Holy Scripture about the natural and the supernatural worlds. And we are to be bound by faith to God's authority. So this is what I want to ask you. Do you believe Jesus is the God-man who is uniquely the perfect revealer of God the Father? And do you believe and trust Him as God, about things seen and unseen. You see, I think we do pretty well up to the seen things. We we believe and we pray and we ask God for those things that we, we see, that we're facing, that we're difficulties, that are struggles, that are temptations. We see those things, we trust God, we we have a sense of, of and we try to look to Scripture to answer. But you know, when we take the next step. Do you trust the Lord Jesus for the unseen things? That's an advancement in our faith. When we trust Jesus for the future, when we trust Jesus for the unknown tomorrow, when we don't start dwelling on the phantoms and the specters and the superstitious worries that ring out our fears, but perfect love casts out fear. We love Him because He first loved us. What did Jesus say to the church at Ephesus? Return to your first love. Keep your first love. I think that means keep worshiping and loving worshiping God. Keep God first. Worship God first. Return to the first love. In verse 54, we go on to read, And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. So once again, the boat, like the house in Capernaum. Do you remember the house in Capernaum? We started out in in the opening of Mark that somebody provided Jesus with a house. From the context, we don't think it's Peter's house. seems like it's another house in Capernaum. And some have speculated maybe maybe it was a house where Mary lived with uh, Jesus' uh, earthly family. But we're not told that. We're just told that a house was provided as a ministry station for Jesus in Capernaum. But also, do you remember how many times we've come across the boat? Over and over, the boat is referenced in terms of Jesus using it, of not being crushed by the crowd, of being pushed out a little bit and it becoming his pulpit, of getting back and forth across the sea and even being caught in storms more than once. So the boat is being providentially provided 
It was a common fishing vessel, but it was used by Jesus for his public ministry and for many object lessons for the faith of the disciples and for us as Christian believers. You want to do a little interesting study? Take a concordance, turn to the gospel, or turn to the word boat, and look up the sections in the Gospel of Mark or, or the other Gospels as well. And just do a little study on how often the boat shows up in its use in Jesus' ministry, in his public ministry, and also the object lessons. They've been out toiling all night, fishing, and caught nothing, and Jesus said, Have you caught anything? No, we've caught nothing. Throw your nets on the other side. They were out there in the boat fishing. They were in the boat going across the sea and they were caught in a storm. Jesus used the boat to get from point A to point B that he might continue to spread the gospel, even going to a pagan land and casting out many demons. Over and over and over again, this fishing vessel, this boat that was providentially provided for the Lord Jesus is a part of his public ministry, but also object lessons for the faith of his disciples and for us. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Repeatedly, the boat is referenced, which is not only a mode of transportation, but also repeatedly used by Jesus like a sanctuary for the visible church, often reconnecting Jesus publicly after an intense lesson of faith for the disciples. So, so we're to have a good faith conscience Because we are in the visible church that represents to us the reality of the invisible church. What do I mean by that? Well, Christian ministers and Christian believers should think of the visible church as a symbol and representative of the invisible church. Like an ark of safety in a sin-flooded world. Peter says that baptism is the um, antitype. It fulfills the type of the ark, the the saving ark in the flood and in Noah's day. And and, and Peter says there is now an antitype that saves you, not the washing away of dirt from your body, but the answer of a good conscience, good faith conscience, believing God and what that baptism signifies to us, that Jesus is our ark of safety. He carries us through the waters. and Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Him. No matter how many troubled waters, the troubled waters representing the the world, the fallen world and its turmoil, tossed to and, and fro, stirring up the muck of the world in a storm that threatens to destroy us. But we will not be destroyed. We'll be carried through. So baptism is administered in the visible church. But the efficacy of baptism only comes by the Holy Spirit through the church invisible. Wonderful chapter in our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, about that. About the wonder and the beauty of baptism. There are just multiple layers of meaning in baptism. And it's not in the outward mode and it's not in the, uh, the outward element of water. All that's just a representative of the greater reality that which is administered in the visible church with the words of institution and the promises and the information that comes for us from the word of God is revealing to us something that is of a greater reality in the church invisible. So that's what I'm saying to you about the boat. I'm not trying to allegorize the boat. I'm just saying the boat was used for Jesus' public ministry. The boat was used for Jesus' object lessons to the disciples about their faith. We should see that. We should recognize that. And we should recognize that the visible church is like that. It represents something of a greater reality, invisible. And that is the kingdom of God and the power of the gospel. 
Then in verses 55 and 56, I hope you will just be enriched by this. That immediately the people recognized him in verse 55, ran through all the whole surrounding region and began to carry on beds those who were sick to whatever... Uh, to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that he might just, or that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Why did the people come to Jesus from the whole surrounding region bearing the sick on cots and begging to touch the hem, the fringe, or the tassel of his cloak. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Well, the answer is obvious if you remember back in the opening chapters. From the personal witnesses and reports to the good news about Jesus by those who believed. Who believed? Well, there was a man in chapter 2 who couldn't come to Jesus. His loving friends took him on a cot. And they came to the house where Jesus was. Remember that house that had been provided for a ministry station for Jesus? They couldn't get in because there were so many people. And evidently people were not very accommodating to try to let them in. No, no, I have, I have need. I want Jesus to, to see my child. I want Jesus to, uh, to touch my grandmother. I, no, you can't get in. So what did they do? They went up on the roof and they took the roof tiles apart and they let their friend down in the presence of Jesus on a cot that they had brought him on because he was paralyzed and he couldn't walk himself. You remember what Jesus did? He commended their faith. He commended the man's faith. We have this notion that somehow the friends brought this man to Jesus, but but he was in a coma or didn't believe. Not at all. Jesus commended his faith. Maybe he's the one who persuaded them, please, please take me to Jesus. I can't go on my own. What happens? Jesus commends his faith and Jesus heals him and Jesus forgives his sin. Jesus saved the man in body, soul, and spirit. Eventually that man would die. But his soul will go on to the other side, safe in Jesus. And so the word got out. Why do you think these people are bringing people who are sick and can't come under their own power? I don't think all of them were paralyzed. They were just too sick to make it on their own. Sick, weak, and infirm. And they start carrying them to Jesus wherever they hear he is. And what do they ask? Oh, let us just reach out and touch the hem of your garment, the tassel, the fringe of your cloak. Does that sound familiar? Because Jesus was on the way to attend to a sick little girl. The daughter of Jairus, one of the leaders of the synagogue. He came to Jesus in faith. But his little daughter couldn't come. She was laying on her sickbed. She was laying on her deathbed. As a matter of fact, while he was on the way, he was interrupted by a woman who came up behind him in the crowd. She didn't want to be noticed. She had a number of reasons why. Chiefly, she had a bleeding disease that made her unclean and also made her sick. And in an act of faith beyond her fears, she reached out and touched the hem, the tassel, or the fringe of Jesus' cloak. One of the things that we suggested there is that the way she knew Jesus was the way he was dressed as a rabbi. We don't know if she'd ever seen Jesus before. We know the crowd was pressing all around him. She had to kind of work her way through the crowd. According to Old Testament law, everybody she touched was unclean. And we need to understand when Jesus cleansed her, he cleansed and removed the curse of the law. Have you thought about that? She reached out and touched 
Jesus from behind, and Jesus immediately stopped and said, who touched me? You know the story. You know how the disciples said, what do you mean? There are people thronging you everywhere. This is like trying to get on the subway in New York. Jesus said, no. And he turned around and looked and saw the woman. He didn't embarrass her. He was a champion of her faith. Your faith has made you whole, woman. Go in peace. Jesus saved her. He removed her uncleanness. He removed the curse of the law. So people come bringing on stretchers and cots those who are too weak to come on their own and they're begging that they might touch the hem of Jesus' garment whether they've even seen Jesus or not because why? The report went out. The word went forward. Touch Jesus and you'll be healed. Touch him in faith and he'll save you. They didn't have to touch Jesus, but this was how it was going about. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus manifested himself. Everywhere he went, they brought him to the marketplaces, in the villages, in the cities, out in the countryside. And what did Jesus do? Jesus gave himself to them so they could touch all who believed. Remember the story of, of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness? The people who would look would live? The people who touch. The people who brought the infirm, the people who brought the weak, the people who, who helped those who couldn't help themselves. They came believing and touching Jesus because Jesus availed himself and Jesus was in touch with them. And he tells us in a greater way, he's in touch with us. I hope you get that. By the witness of the Holy Spirit, I hope that it's confirmed in your heart with all assurance. So as we come to the conclusion here, of Mark chapter 6, Christian ministers and Christian believers should not belittle or doubt the public and the personal witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ for continued recognition of the saving power of the gospel over this world of unbelief. That, that to me is where the crescendo comes in conclusion. And everything that's gone before, much of it has been challenging and kind of dis uh, disheartening in some ways about unbelief in the world, unbelief in the world. But we come to this conclusion here, and we as Christian believers, and me as a Christian minister, should not belittle or doubt the public and the personal witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching to you from this scripture, preaching in faith, believing that the Holy Spirit will confirm this to you. And we are to continually witness to and to call out the saving power of Jesus through the gospel. How do we know what the gospel is? The word of God tells us. I've been preaching the gospel, the good news come down from heaven about who Jesus Christ is. Straight talk about who he is. Not trying to rationalize it away. Not trying to uh, somehow give in to uh, human speculation that uh, these people just, you know, got well because of some kind of psychological condition. They believed they were getting better, so they got to feeling better. None of that. No. I'm talking to you about supernatural salvation that only God can do His way. That's what the record of Jesus is about. Salvation God's way. Do you doubt that? Do you think it's insufficient? You see, there, there are all these voices in every generation there are these voices saying, oh, that has run its course. People don't believe that anymore. People never believed it. Unless the Holy Spirit brought it with power and conviction to bring them out of the dead to life. And so we don't belittle or doubt 
these personal and public witnesses that we give to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You go out of here this morning. You don't doubt. Your public witness bearing testimony to the saving power of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if a thousand times before you have a friend, a family member, an acquaintance, a work connection, a school acquaintance. It doesn't matter if a thousand times before they've scoffed and, and doubted or rejected or don't want to hear it. Or, but yet, opportunity comes again for you to give witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ. Don't belittle or doubt it. That's the point that's being made. Remember what we said about this section of Scripture? That you can take all of the individual examples that were used as samples and you can multiply them many times over. Jesus was about doing it all over and over and over again. Over and over. More than we have record of, He was healing and restoring the blind. He was raising the infirm, the weak, the sick, the uh, lame, of all manner, uh, the, the fellow with a withered hand, perhaps it had been from an accident. Remember all those isolated examples or, or those uh, particular examples that are given to us? Here we're told that it was happening over and over and over. Don't lose that. Don't lose that scope of the public ministry of Jesus. And then see if you can multiply that by infinity. What is Jesus doing in heaven? Is it greater to have a physical injury or a physical disease healed? Or is it greater to have your soul saved for all eternity? So of all the limited healings Jesus did on earth, because he was only here for a short time, can you even calculate the multiple uh, times of Jesus saving someone's soul for eternity. Myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, millions upon millions, more than the stars of the universe. That's what we're told. Jesus saves more souls than there are stars in the sky or sands on the seashore. Now, do you believe that about the saving power of Jesus? Don't be belittling. Don't be doubting. Don't be afraid. Believe. That's the straight talk about who Jesus is. And by this Lord's Supper, in a wonderful and simple way, Jesus says, I am in touch with you. I stay in touch with you. I am more real to you by faith than these elements are. To your physical senses. Believe it. Believe it.